Welcome to our second Unheard podcast with myself, Aisha Hazarika, and Tim Montgomery, who is the editor of Unheard. And we are joined by a very, very special guest, Nick Bowles, who I actually haven't met before, but I feel like I do know you quite well, mainly because of your Twitter, your spoof Twitter account, <laughs> which is literally one of the best things on Twitter. General Bowles, bane of my life. <laughs> and um, for those who, who, who don't know, um, Nick is a, a Conservative MP and um, has, for the second time in your life, been fighting cancer, Nick, and you've re-emerged and looking really good, if I may say so, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to see you again, it, re- it really is, and thanks for, for being on our podcast. Well, thank you very much for asking me, it's a good, <laughs> a good first gig. <laughs> um, and, and we haven't done very well, Aisha, have we, because I think we met three weeks ago promising the start of a weekly podcast, and so three-week gap isn't really weekly. It's not so. very good, is it? I feel like we're on, like, it's like the Brexit timetable. I feel like we're sort of <laughs> missing it errantly as the weeks slip by. Basically, we'll be like, no podcast is better than a bad podcast. Uh, well, we'll try and... Uh, the party, well, I think we can blame the party conferences and yes. us being in Brighton and um, in Manchester. But um, we're going to talk to Nick. Uh, he's our special guest, and we'll, we'll ask him a few questions. But um, one of the things that's happened in Britain this week is Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has published a report looking at the gap between different racial groups in in Britain and it's thrown up some stark um, differences but interestingly you know, white working class boys particularly um, at the bottom of the of the pile what did you make Aisha of of the initiative and, and the results did did any of it surprise you it didn't surprise me look I I definitely applaud the initiative I think in trying to address inequality, data and transparency is incredibly important. If you can't see it, you can't fix it and you can't track it. So that is important. The statistics did not sound particularly new to me as somebody who is from an ethnic minority background. I would take a close interest in these issues. These horror statistics have been going on for a long time and I think what we need to be careful about is just not falling into the trap which is hurrah we've got the data now job done it's actually how do you move the needle on this stuff um I worked as a young press officer in the home office back in gosh a long time ago when Jack Straw was the then home secretary and there was the McPherson report into how the death of Stephen Lawrence had been handled. And that was like quite a big moment for race relations back in the day because Jack Straw had coined this phrase institutional racism in terms of how the Metropolitan Police had dealt with this murder because it was a black boy. They made assumptions that were very, very negative to how the investigation carried on. So this issue has, you know, Britain's been grappling with this issue for a long, long time. And if I'm really honest, has the needle moved that much? Certainly horrible racism, people calling names out in the street, that has all gone, thank goodness. And Britain prides itself on being a tolerant society. But I think when it comes to real power, it's still quite male, pale and stale. There was a Guardian report with Operation Black Vote that said 97% of Britain's elites are white. You look around any of our top tables, whether they're in newsrooms, in the cabinet room, in courtrooms, you know, there is still a way to go. So I think this is a good start, but we need a lot more action and maybe some positive action. Do we know, do we know what the percentage is actually in Parliament now? Um, I did um, a little slot on the BBC about this report and um, I think we had Dawn Butler 
uh, and Sam Gima, two uh, members of parliament from Labour and the Conservative Party, both non-white. And one of the things that's absolutely changed over over recent years, and um, Nick Bowles was part of promoting it with uh, some of the uh, with a sea change initiative that you were associated with, Nick. But there's a good number now of ethnic minority MPs in Parliament. Probably not enough, but there's been real progress. In the 1980s, unbelievably, there were none. Well, you know, in the early 90s, yeah. and now you have ministerial ranks in Parliament at least populated with people who have perhaps been at the raw end of of racism. Now, I'm not someone who believes that you have to be black or a woman or gay or whatever to necessarily sympathise or empathise with, with, with prejudice. But it can help to have a good number of people who've had that perspective and it, perhaps it's more of a burning and a priority issue for them. So do, do, are you more hopeful because at least in Parliament you're seeing that sort of composition change? I'm definitely pleased that there are more BAME MPs from you know, in all parties. And I think to credit where credit is due, I think the Conservatives have selected some excellent, um, you know, MPs. Um, what's the name of your woman from Saffron? Kemi. Yes, yeah. she's, you know, there's some, there's some brilliant, and that's all good to see them coming through. But I suppose my issue is that's, that's good, but you want to make sure that there is a, a kind of a range of different voices and lived experience in the room when the big decisions are being made. I mean, I, I agree with you. You don't have to have been a, be a particular person to empathise with a particular type of prejudice or to right a wrong. But I think in politics, same as anything else, there is a big danger of groupthink. And I, I think, look, you've all worked with advisors, special advisors. I was a special advisor. You know, in terms of the real power, who's in the room and the really, really big decisions get taken. Sometimes, in fact, we all know it's not really backbench MPs. Quite often it's not ministers. Sometimes it's not even cabinet ministers. Where real power is concentrated in a political party, we all know it's often still quite a monoculture. It tends to be male, it tends to be Oxbridge, it tends to be a certain type of person. So I think my view is, until you get a kind of a mix of people right in that kind of fulcrum of power, things aren't going to change enough. Do you think, Nick, from, from your perspective, the Tories do have um, more women, they have uh, more people from ethnic minorities, but how much has the class basis of the party changed? How much, you know, the, quite a few of the um, uh, new Tory MPs, you know, they may have a different gender, they may have a different ethnicity, but they went to perhaps quite elite private schools mm -hmm. and is there still enough understanding, particularly in the Conservative Party, of the problem it faces as the party of the rich, if you like, which will perhaps segue into our wider conversation about Tory modernisation? I think it's certainly true that we do look, and I think this is true probably across Parliament to an extent, that we do look very middle, middle, middle class uh, as a party, and that um, you know the, the the level of sort of private school education has actually fallen, I think, quite fast in the Parliamentary Party. Um, but you know the the backgrounds, professional backgrounds, lawyers and accountants and and, and people who worked in in and around uh, the media and politics does does predominate. Um, somebody I'm rather fascinated by at the moment, though I don't know her, is Angela Rayner, um, uh, obviously the shadow education secretary for the Labour Party, and I just think that when well, I'd love the Tory Party to have a few people who could speak with her. 
um, passion and, and courage uh, and authenticity um, having come from the sort of background that she's very open about having come from and I think she's a very very powerful advocate for the causes she believes in uh, because of of that background um, but equally you can't you know you can't over engineer these things I think it will come through in time I'm very interested by what uh, uh, you said about the where the decisions really made and and of course you know the moment when things will have really been cracked is when we have a uh, a black woman chief of staff to the prime minister mm. because we all know that in truth you know the chief of staff and the head of strategy or one or two other advisors are often the people who are really in the room when the Prime Minister makes a decision. Absolutely. I mean, that power behind the throne is so, so important in politics. And I mean, I remember when I was actually for a short time Chief of Staff at the Labour Party when Harriet Harman was acting oh. leader. But there were so few people that looked like me as senior advisors. I remember um, one of the door staff got me confused for Baroness Farsi. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that was like worse for it, to be to be honest. But, I mean, the Labour Party was the same, you know, we liked to pride ourselves on being the party of women and equality, and we had done all women shortlists. But actually, if you looked at, you know, the very, very top flight advisors, they were pretty middle class, white, male, certainly not many people from a working class background, not many people from outside London as well, which I think kind of, you know, quite disadvantaged us in terms of how we communicated with people. So I think all parties have to do way, way better on this. So Nick, um, genuinely welcome back. It's, it's it's great to see you. And for those of our listeners who who do not know, you know, you were the founder of um, Policy Exchange, um, which was a think tank that certainly at the start of the Cameron years was a great incubator of new ideas and uh, and new thinking. Um, you've you, you've regularly sort of been a, a proponent of, of of change in the Conservative Party, and um, you look at the Conservative Party now. Um, so much has sort of changed in its priorities. Second woman leader, accepting of uh, of gay marriage, uh, a much more diverse parliamentary party, as, as, as we've been talking. But this stubborn problem keeps attached to it, doesn't it? That it's seen as the party of the of the rich, and, and a defender of a capitalist system that perhaps is less popular than it has been for a very long time. Ten years after the crash, and of course we see. Jeremy Corbyn taking advantage of that in Britain. We see Bernie Sanders taking advantage of it um, in, in, in America. How much is it a problem of cosmetic reputation for the right, that's party of the rich thing? Or are there some really sub pretty substantial changes that the right needs to make? I think to some extent the challenge is, if anything, bigger this time than it was uh, in you know the sort of mid-2000s when when modernisation in the Conservative Party really began and when obviously David Cameron then became leader in 2005. Because then, you know, the, the common uh, view shared across parties was that, you know, the economic questions had been answered, that the system was broadly speaking working, that we had a capitalism generated the, the, the wealth that paid the taxes that paid for decent public services. Um, and so r rightly and understandably, David Cameron focused on social problems. Uh, and the broken societies he called it then and his response to that around the big society. Um, what we have now is a more fundamental challenge to parties of the right because there is a very widespread perception that capitalism is not delivering the goods. 
not just not for the poorest, um, actually, um, in fact, the, the incomes of the poorest are the only incomes that have gone up in the last few years, um, but that it's not serving the broad mass in the middle of working people who feel like that they're doing everything that they're meant to do uh, and who find themselves poorer and less able to buy a house and uh, uh, facing the prospect of, of, of working for much longer than they'd expected and, and lots of other things. So I think the challenge is very, is very existential uh, because uh, if, if we believe in one thing, it is that we believe in the free society and the free market is part of the free society. Um, on the other hand, I think that it is, I'm optimistic because I think that we have every chance of being the people who have the answers as how do you reform capitalism uh, to make it fairer again as it, as it was, you know, people felt it was broadly fair for most of the post-war period. Uh, and we've got time, we've got four and a half years till the next election. Um, I don't believe that there's, you know, really any significant chance of an early election. So as a, a party, I think that we've got the, you know, there is the problem of being in office, which is always, you know, quite time consuming for the senior people. Um, but for those of us who aren't on the front bench and in the front line, I think now is our chance to, to go away and, and think quite hard about the sort of capitalist deal. Uh, and how we can reform it. And, and the inspiration I take is from, um, you know, in my view, one of the greatest presidents the United States ever had, which is Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who was faced with a similar situation of capitalism, uh, of excess, the robber barons, um, and who uh, uh, decided that if, if they didn't reform capitalism, the populists of the left would sweep it away. Mm. And I think that's the challenge we face, and, and he managed to do it, um, and there's no reason why we shouldn't as well. Well, there's an opportunity for a commercial break because um, we made a video, Ida Taba. I don't know if you know Ida Taba, but I didn't until Liam Halligan made a film about her for Unheard. But uh, it's on our website and I'll link to it on, on, on the podcast link. But um, uh, she was a journalist of her time who recognised the concentration of power in these companies that had octopus-like control over, over politics. And she dedicated her journalistic life to exposing these abuses, which helped Teddy Roosevelt um, form the uh, agenda that he did but do you see um unfair question but i'm gonna ask it anyway did you see do you see in philip hammond and theresa may a passion to face up to the issues that i think you've spotlighted absolutely accurately um i i think you know the leadership needs to come from the top from from the leader and i think that you know you can't not be impressed by the fact that Theresa May you know, commissioned this audit of, of disparities of the way different racial groups uh, are being treated, that the, the, everything she's talked about, about burning injustices in her conference speech, the you know, pledging her premiership to, to this solving is, this the, is, the housing this crisis. This is her problem though, isn't it, though, that I find this with her anyway. She's good at talking about the problem. Um, you know, her speech on the steps of Downing Street when she first became Prime Minister was probably saying, I used to imagine a few Labour people were nodding their heads out as Ed well. Miliband was like, I think I've, this is one of my speeches. <laughs> <laughs> why is she stealing my stuff? That's quite a good impersonation. <laughs> um, I think it's, but yeah. it, it doesn't really ever lead to action. You know, it's like the yeah. council housing announcement in her party conference speech. Hugely trails. It amounts to 5,000 houses a year. It's not going to make any real difference. But one of the things that I really noticed at 
Conservative conference was my first one that I'd um, ever been to. And there was a lot of interesting, thoughtful discussion going on in the fringe meetings pertaining to this issue. I sat, I chaired a really interesting one um, by We Are Bright Blue with Robert Halfen. And Robert was talking about actually the Conservatives should sort of realign themselves instead of being against trade unions. We should actually say unionisation is good for workers. We should have a charter for workers which look at workers' rights, workers' wages, workers' welfare. It was a very kind of progressive, arresting, interesting discussion. And actually, it's probably more relevant to how people out there are feeling in terms of, you know, living standards, et cetera, et cetera. Yet Philip Hammond stands up and his speech is just this very old school, we're defending capitalism and I'm just going to call Jeremy Corbyn Venezuela because that worked really well in the general election campaign. It was like they seemed to have such a tin ear to all these interesting discussions that are happening with some of the other MPs in the own party. I think it's certainly fair to say that the policy follow through uh, is has been inadequate um, and that we're in at risk of a, of a gap opening up between the the expectations raised by the rhetoric and the actual policy proposals that we're delivering and and I'm sure that you know some one of the reasons for that is is this perception that you know we're in a hung parliament we don't have a reliable majority for for lots of legislation because the 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 deal with the DUP is obviously restricted to certain matters um, and that therefore we can't be proposing things well the you know the reality of life a is that you can do lots of stuff without legislation uh, but B, you know, if we think that there are some solutions to the housing crisis that do require legislation, I'll give you one example. I'd love to reform compulsory purchase laws so that you can buy land uh, for housing development at its current value, uh, not um, uh, at, a, at a future possible value as development land. And, you know, we should bring that f- proposal forward. And we should say to the Labour Party, you want to fix this crisis too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we challenge you to back it. And yes, we'll work with you and we'll listen to you. And maybe you'll ask for us to add other things yeah. in. But let's get into the, 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 the business of, you know, of, of doing deals with the opposition to get stuff done that we all believe in. And I think we could then be braver. And I think then people would see that we were genuinely trying to gab- govern in the national interest, even despite the, the problems of the parli- parliamentary arithmetic. And in terms of the balance of the challenge for not just Tory modernisation, but for, for, for British modernisation, modernisation of the right across, across the world, is it a problem of largely of will, that we have the ideas, but we're not willing to act on them, like maybe confronting some of the monopolies in, like in technology or is it originally you, you're a former think tanker as I said you, you form policy exchange are they traditional sources of new ideas producing enough material for practitioners of politics such as yourself um, I, I don't know I'm, I'm not so in touch with the, the think tank world um, it is easier funny enough when you're to be running a think tank and coming up with the ideas when in a sense the party that is your most likely client is in opposition because they're starting with a fairly blank sheet of paper um they're much more open to something really quite dramatic and you know to to, to give one example the 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 free schools uh policy was basically developed at, at policy exchange um uh 15 years ago 
And, you know, it was a pretty dramatic and radical policy, and it has been implemented almost completely in full. Mm. Once you're in government, let alone, you know, seven years in or whatever we are, um, uh, it becomes much harder for a think tank to get an audience because also opposition politicians both have a need for ideas. They also have more time in their diaries, which the civil service stuff full of, you know, slightly pointless representative meetings. Um, so I think there is a structural problem. But I don't, I must say, the, what I find interesting is that I think that there's probably a more fertile parliamentary party uh, in terms of ideas than at any time that I've been around politics um, on the conservative side. And I can think of, you know, a huge number of people who are quite capable of coming up with ideas, in, in a sense, independently of, of think tanks, Rob Halfon, you know, being one of the foremost among them. Uh, and they have a much better chance of grabbing a minister in a division lobby and, you know, you've got this problem, uh, let me put it in front of you. And how do these, how do you give expression to these ideas? If there's lots of ideas, you know, sort of swishing around that could be modernising and could be interesting, how do you, as modernising MPs, how do you give a voice to that at the time when the leadership of your party is so stuck in this existential kind of nightmare? <laughs> not, um, not, not to put a spin on your question. I mean, <laughs> it, it's hard because um, you know Brexit is 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 rightly consuming an enormous of, amount of the the bandwidth of senior politicians, um, and in a sense, it would be you know twice as shocking if it wasn't, given how big a thing it is. Um, so that, that that is hard, but equally, you know, they're all very much aware, um, and you know, Theresa May's speech at conference uh, showed this. They're very much aware that they can't just do Brexit and let everything else just glide, um, because you know people won't forgive them for that because there's some very real problems. And if anything, because they've got less time to focus on it, you know, I think they're more open to um, people coming up with new ideas. The difficulty, as ever, is is actually getting the idea you know off that two-page memo <coughs> that you wrote and took to Gavin Barwell the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff or to Sajid Javid uh, getting it into the machine and surviving the process because the machine the civil service machine has an amazing ability to you know frustrate and delay and raise objections and you know they're doing their job that is their job in a sense is to ask awkward questions um, but what pops out at the end bears no relation to the radicalism of the original proposal and that is very hard in government and also it's it's just very hard as you say when you're so snarled up in in the brexit process i mean i was a civil servant for for quite a long time and you you can get things through effectively but you need advisors and ministers on civil servants like a hawk, which means you know there's no time to be distracted by by other things. And I think from a from an outsider's point of view, I mean, I felt that Theresa May's speech just was so. <coughs> it was kind of. <laughs> don't, don't know why I coughed suddenly. Uh, you know, arrived at, every, uh, at that point. But, every uh, yeah. comedy club I've been to in the last <laughs> couple of weeks has started by going. <coughs> That's been the best thing. But it was it was more platitude than attitude. I sort of thought, okay, this is your chance to sort of say, look, here's my vision for the country. And the, the, the housing announcement is absolutely endemic of that. Everyone was thinking, yeah, this is going to be good. There's going to be an acknowledgement that we need more council houses. And instead, there's just sort of not very much on council houses 
a lot on help to buy, which we all know is not the right solution. So who is kind of feeding into the top tier the ideas for the vision, who is saying to them or who is voicing to them the concerns from the middle ranks saying, look, guys, you, you've you got to spell out, particularly if you're going to try and get young people to, to, to be attracted to the Conservatives again. I mean, I think, it, obviously, you know, a huge amount changed since the election. You know, the Prime Minister lost her two key advisers. One of them, Nick Timothy, you know, was a very deep thinker about these problems, very you know, keen as keen as any of us to to, to try and uh, fix some of them, and and quite a fertile policy uh, brain, and and he's been taken out of the equation. Do you think uh, he's a loss? I mean, I do. I mean, I completely understand why he resigned, and I think it was inevitable. And I think that there obviously had been some issues with with the way in which the machine operated um, uh, when when he was there, and there were other problems. But I think he's a you know a, a creative thinker. Um, he focuses on the real issues, um, and and he probably hasn't yet been adequately replaced. But on the other hand, what we also clearly have is a is a situation now where cabinet ministers are much more able to to set the agenda for themselves. And the example I would give you is that you know Michael Gove, as far as I can tell, in the last four weeks has made more decisions and announced more. Uh, very important and meaty announcements on the environment, whether it's the ivory ban or whether it's the micro beads or or, or Quite various a lot other things. On animal welfare and animal welfare, and he's done all of that. You know, in, in you know, he's done more in a couple of months than you know probably the previous three secretaries of state in that department put together. So you know, a confident secretary of state who has some policy ideas should be you know really making hay right now. Uh, so long as it doesn't require legislation. And Nick, it really is lovely to have you back. And are Thank you? you. Uh, has the treatment for you been successful? Are you um, uh, able to give us that good news? Well, I, when you've had cancer twice, I mean, even when you've had it once, um, you become a bit cautious about pronouncing it, you know, gone. Mm. Um, and this is now my second time in 10 years. Uh, uh, but it's gone for now, and that's good enough for me. Um, and I'm, you know, back to work, and it's it's great to be back. And and you do have a, you have an amazing sense of sort of a, a second chance, and you know, renewed enthusiasm for things that perhaps one had become a bit jaded about suddenly seem rather great. Um, so you know, you want to go out, and including enjoy podcasting, it. including podcasting. <laughs> I was never an old hand at podcasting, but yeah. you know, constituency surgeries. I can honestly say I look forward to them, uh, yeah. uh, which is, I can't pretend has always been the case. Um, um, and what's next for you? Do you know, are you just going to sort of focus on your core duties for a, a period or, or do you have plans while you've probably been lying um, recuperating? I should imagine some big thoughts would be. Well, I you know. You're I, talking of fertile yeah. brains as you as you were. Yours is one of the most fertile I've, I know in politics. I've had, certainly had more time than I knew what to do with and, and that has been time to think about things. So I'm going to write a, a book of a kind. Um, though, though not um, in book form, uh, it will be sort of published in, in instalments. Um, You're going and to do it by tweet. And I'm going to take <laughs> uh, take a, a inspiration from uh, Theodore Roosevelt. That's uh, that's all I'll say for the moment. Uh, but that's going to be be unfolding over the next few months. Um, and, and yes, I am hoping to persuade General Bowles. Uh, to emigrate um, because <laughs> everybody else in, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is my parody uh, Twitter account 
And it, when it got to the point where he was so much funnier than I was, <laughs> uh, and so much more popular than I was, and his you know <laughs> follower count was like triple mine, <laughs> that I actually I began to resent him rather than the reverse. So. And for, that, for those who don't know, this was I think was it when you were a housing and planning minister. Yes. And, you wanted to actually build some more homes, and I, I think a certain newspaper um, sort of presented as if you were going to declare war on the countryside. Not, not perhaps the most helpful headline. And I think General Bowles was um, exactly a general of the war on the countryside was born at that moment. So, so the cause was a good one, building more houses, <laughs> but it was perhaps a little before its time. But it got to the stage where like General Bowles would tweet things, and people would like literally take that as like a political sort of that was a political truth yeah. from a spoof account i know i did, know did, did lots of people generally thought you were behind it did they and, or and it also what's extraordinary because he's been doing it now for you know five years off and on um still none of us had the first clue who he is it's not and we you. all it's not you is theory. it Aisha? Not. <laughs> tim Honestly, and the spooky thing you are is, rubbish at this the spooky thing is is that sometimes he would tweet something or she. That I just she, or she, or she. that I just thought. I mean, wow. there were a few occasions where I mean, you're, not, she, help, you're not helping now. He or she did know myself. Don't, did know me quite well because they, they sometimes they'd say something that I just thought about the thing that they were commenting on. I just had exactly the That's same thought. That's brilliant. So, um, what if you could have a? What's your message to General Bull? Because I'm sure he or she will be listening. Well, I know what your message is, which is come back, all is forgiven. But <laughs> mine is emigrate, die. I don't care, but I don't want to hear from you again. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, it's been. It's lovely to see you. It really is lovely Pleasure to see you. Doing and um, thanks for being our second guest. And Aisha, are we going to do better? Are we going to hit weekly? Yes. 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 It's a political vow, is it? That yes. We will now? We're going to make yeah. a, a promise, a solemn promise <laughs> to our many, many listeners. Should we carve it on an headstone? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just get the headstone out of my pink bus, which is just parked downstairs. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thank you all very much um, for listening. Um, we will put not only this um, podcast on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud and the usual places, but we will post the uh, podcast on unheard.com and um, we'll link to uh, Nick's Twitter profile and some of the other uh, things we've been talking about, including that Ida Tarbell film made by Liam Halligan. Until next week, Aisha. Until next yes, week. Yes, we can. We're going to do we're it. We're going to do this. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.